We blossom and flourish as leaves on a tree. We wither and perish, but not changeth thee. We have been reminded over these last several weeks in a unique way of the truth of exactly those phrases from our hymns. Only several weeks ago now, a madman went into a grocery store in Buffalo and gunned down 10 people on the basis, apparently, of their race. Not long after that, a madman went into Uvalde, an elementary school, and gunned down 21, the majority of which were young elementary school children. We saw even this last weekend, if you were following the news, multiple mass shootings, one in Tennessee, um, uh, another one in Michigan, multiple dead, six dead, I think, dozens that were wounded. I mentioned this morning in our announcement time that struck close to home, literally uh, for me, my neighbors had moved to Minnesota to help plant a church connected to the, the, uh, the Salt City network of college campus ministries. And as they were in the founding church, the sending church, um, this, this, uh, uh, this last weekend at that church that they had been sent from, a uh, man showed up uh, at the church for a Thursday night activity, uh, found a girlfriend that had just broken up with him and gunned her down at the church, on the church property. Um, and a friend of hers also was killed. Uh, 21, 22-year-old lives just senselessly, completely senselessly taken before he turned the gun on himself. Uh, I got another touch of that, as I mentioned this morning in our morning sermon, the idea that um, some of you know I was down at a coal-fired power plant a couple weeks ago uh, investigating and taking a look at that plant, taking a tour and get related to some litigation that I'm involved in. Just this week, we learned that in the coal pit that was there, uh, two men had, were, who worked at the, uh, as subcontractors at the plant uh, got out of their vehicles, apparently, and a, uh, to investigate moving the coal pit, and the coal pit collapsed on them. They were buried 60 feet deep in coal, an 80-foot coal uh, 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 stack, and crushing them, bringing them to their death. You see just the tragedy of life. We see a war halfway across the world that is in casualties, tens of thousands of people, and we still as a society are reckoning with the coronavirus, which estimates, of course, have, have uh, had a million or more Americans alone that have died and millions more around the world. We are dealing with death right now in a profound way. But C.S. Lewis has, I think, a helpful reminder. C.S. Lewis gave a sermon during World War II and the message of that was the subject was learning in wartime. You can go and read it. I think it has some very interesting points to make. But C.S. Lewis points out that the war, in this case, creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Think about that for a moment. What is the permanent human situation? Death. War does not create any new dead who will not already die. 
it, yes, it hastens their death. It brings it to, if you will, a premature conclusion, but it does not kill anyone who will not themselves die. He points out that it simply aggravates that permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. He goes on to say human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Yet he says, again, war does, not, does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us. And so if you will, together as a church and as a society and as a culture in view of these tragic events that have been unfolding in recent weeks, death is not being changed in any way, but it is being forced on our consciousness that our society as a whole is being forced to reckon with. Lewis goes on to say, that in we need to remember war, he says this would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past, that it brought death directly to our consciousness. He said they thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. I am inclined to think they were right. And Lewis was right in the Bible sense because in Psalm 90 here, a, a psalm written by Moses, the man of God, we have these memorable words often read at funerals in verse 12. So teach us to number our days. So teach us, God, to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Or as your margin of your Bible may put it, cause to come to wisdom. That we may obtain wisdom by this reflection. And so... I'm going to this evening violate what must be a cardinal rule among speakers. Don't be morbid. Don't deal with mortality. Don't deal with death. It is a subject too gloomy. It is a subject too dark and morose for us to come into profitably. Well, no. If we are dealing with our Bibles, we will deal with the subject of mortality, including our own. And we will pray with the author, Moses, teach us to number our days. The title of the message this evening is A Lesson on Mortality. A Lesson on Mortality. And I hope that this evening, as we reflect on the mortality that has exploded around us in recent days, that we ourselves will have the goal of attending this course on mortality, that God will be our teacher and that through it we will gain a heart of wisdom. Just three things on this lesson of mortality is first, a teacher, the teacher of this lesson that Moses is requesting. Secondly, the subject that we should be bringing our minds to tonight. And finally, the object. What is the purpose? What is the goal of this Lesson. Let's start first of all with the teacher. The teacher. Who is this? Of course, he's speaking. So teach us to number our days. The the uh, teacher that Moses is contemplating is God. Now, how are we going to come into this psalm together? It is so morose. It is so somber. It is so sober. It is speaking of our brevity of life and God's eternal experience of life. And it is, is filled with 
meditations on God's judgment and God's wrath against sin. And maybe we come to it and we don't fully understand it and we just want to pass by. Sure, I know that my life is short. I know that my days aren't unlimited and let's move on. Well, that's not, I think, the ultimate approach that we need to take. When would this psalm have been written? If Moses would have written this psalm, when do you think it would have been written? Well, my suggestion to you is that there's one period of life that would have easily come to mind for Moses when he was reflecting on the truth of this psalm. Things like, we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. What particular period in Moses' life do you think he would have been most taken, most apparent before him, the judgment of God on the sins of his people Israel. Wandering for 40 years in a wilderness. I heard one pastor make this note. Do you know how it was estimated how many people would have died on average per year in those wilderness wanderings for an entire generation to be wiped out in 40 years? 15 15,000. You can do the math pretty easily, can't you? 50 a day. 50 people of Israel dropping dead a day. That's a lot of funerals. That's a lot of death. And so I think my suspicion is that Moses would have written these times in a reflection on what God was doing in his judgment on the death that was being experienced by his people Israel. And I think that will help us as we work through this psalm briefly and expound on it together. Start with me in verse 1. Notice what he says about the teacher. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. So notice he's talking about something about God's timelessness. God is timeless to our experience. He is our dwelling place, our home. And again, think of how nicely this meshes with Israelites wandering in a wilderness. God, we have had no home. We have been nomads. And yet you, God, you, God, have been our dwelling place across all generations. There is a security in God's timelessness going back all generations. Notice what he says next. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world. It's almost a picture of birth, of formation in the womb. Before the mountains were birthed by God, before the world was formed by God, Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He's saying God is not just timeless in our experience of him. He is timeless in his own extent of time. He is from eternity past to eternity present. Listen to what A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says. He would describe from everlasting, from everlasting to from the vanishing point to the vanishing point from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. Listen to what he says. The mind looks backward in time till the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion, and God is at both points unaffected by either. 
He is from the vanishing point, and he is to the vanishing point. He is from everlasting to everlasting. But then notice what he goes on to say. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. How many of you sit back and reflect on yesterday and how quickly yesterday became today? The passage of time from yesterday today is not even something we think about. It, it is just there. And oh, watch in the night. The, he, the ancient Hebrews had three watches in the night. So you're talking about a, a short period of hours in the night. And just like you roll over and you close your eyes and then you wake up several hours later and it went like that. The psalmist says, a thousand years, God, with you are just like that. Peter echoes these same words in 2 Peter 3 when he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God is timeless not only in the extent of his time, God is timeless in his experience of time. God is eternity in the future. God is eternity in the past. God calls the end from the beginning. He is not bound by time. He does not experience time in the same way that you and I do. He is truly timeless. So notice this again. Moses is reflecting on the eternal nature of God. We have to recognize that, and we'll come back to that. There is an eternal God governing the affairs of men, and all of men are called to enter his classroom and say, Eternal God, I am not eternal. Teach me to number my days, unlike you, whose days are numberless. Now notice what that comes out, not just the teacher that is before us, but the subject before us. So teach us to number our days. God is eternal, we are not. God is timeless, we are bound by time. God is everlasting, he is immortal, and we are mortal. Notice where Moses goes next. The sobering reality is that our days are short. Notice verse 5. He says, Thou carriest them, these generations of men, away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. Notice those pictures. The first one, it's like a flood. Our generations are like a flood. You can imagine the picture of, of water in the springtime moving rapidly and carrying away everything with this powerful rush of water. It's like dropping something that floats in that water and watching it be whisked away. And Moses says, that's our life. It's like a flood. We're carried away. Notice what he says. It's also like a sleep. A sleep. It's like going to bed in evening and waking up in the morning and not remembering a thing other than that it was night and now it was morning. He says that's our experience of life. He says it's like grass that grows up in the morning. It's green, it's flourishing, it's cut down, and by the evening it's yellow. That's our life. Now, let me ask you just to personalize that for yourself. Do you identify with that experience? Do you recognize that your life is like a flood? 
It is like a sleep. It is like grass that is to be cut down and abandoned. James 4 says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We speak of this in generations as well. We talk about the greatest generation. And I saw a story, a sobering story, that even here in Minnesota, we're losing nearly all of our World War II veterans. They are being carried away like a flood, like a sleep. And the youngest of them now are, what, in their 90s? Approaching 100? Pretty soon, before you know it, there will be no surviving World War II veterans. And then one day there will be no Vietnam veterans remaining. And then there will be no, at some point, no Iraq war veterans. Uh, These entire generations of mankind are being carried away. But then notice what is even more sobering than that. It is God that is carrying them away. Look at verse 3. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return ye children of man. Verse 5, thou carriest them away as with a flood. Verse 7, for we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. The, The picture here is not just of, oh, death is inevitable, death is sweeping us along. No, he says, God, you're the actor. You're the one who's doing it. That's a very sobering thought. Go back to verse 3. He says, thou turnest man to destruction. This word destruction literally means to be crushed. And it has the idea of dust that has been crushed. In fact, some of our translations use that word, thou turnest man to dust. Because the picture seems to be just of being ground to powder. And the picture, God turning you and me to dust. You turn man to dust. And you say, return. And of course, the allusion here is to the curse. Out of the ground thou art taken, from dust to dust. When we go to a funeral and we sprinkle that dust on that casket, it is a symbol that the person who is occupying that casket will become dust. That is the end of all men, as Ecclesiastes says, and the living will lay it to heart, but not only that, what is the, uh, the final sobering reality here is that God's judgment on us is a result of his wrath against sin. Have you noticed that if you go to a funeral and you see these passages read, we kind of leave out the middle stuff all about God's anger? That stuff maybe is a little bit uncomfortable, but let's read it with open minds right now, shall we? Verse 7, for we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance, for all our days are passed away in thy wrath. All of them? All of our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. He says the days of our years are threescore years and ten. Seventy years. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow? Seventy years, are you over 70 years old? You're on extra time. You're on borrowed time. You're in overtime, so to speak. And even that overtime, he says, is labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off 
and we fly away. Now, what is he talking about here? We don't focus often on this idea of being just under the wrath of God, under the anger of God. We understand that in Christ there is no condemnation to those who are in him. What is he saying? Well, it goes back ultimately to what Moses understood about the cause of death in the world. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Why is there death in the world? Because God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And in God's, uh, in man's settled rebellion against God, God's settled opposition to our sin is death. God is the one turning us to death. God's settled opposition to mankind's rebellion is so that all man dies. So that death, as Paul says, passes on all men for that all have sinned. We need not say that any particular death is necessarily and certainly the result of God's anger, any special anger against that man, for us to recognize that death is the result of God's anger, righteous anger and judgment on all mankind. Why do men die? Because God is angry. Why is God angry? Because of mankind's rebellion. It is the choice that we have made, and yet it is the result equally of God's settled opposition against our sin. Do we grapple with that? Do we grapple that our death one day will be the follow-on result of mankind's rebellion against a holy God? When God says, teach it, when we learn, teach us to number our days, we are forced to grapple with the effect that sin has created on our world, including the death that ultimately our sin deserves. So notice here the teacher, an eternal, timeless God. Teach us, God, to number our days. The subject of this lesson Teach us to number our days, to grapple with our own mortality, to recognize that our days are short, that there is an appointed number of them, and we do not know when that day will come. Just like it affected those elementary school children in Uvalde, just like it affected a 21 and 22-year-old in Ames, Iowa, just like it effect, is affecting people around this country every day. So our days are appointed. And that's why ultimately I want to look thirdly at the object. Notice again with me in verse number 12. So teach us to number our days that or so that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. What is the object of this course? It's wisdom. Now, I'm sure you remember some college courses or some high school courses that you took that had absolutely no practical effect on your life. I can certainly remember some. In fact, I bet for most of us, if we went back and looked at a 12 or 14 or 16-year-old old's math textbook, you'd have no idea 
that you actually learned that at one time, that you actually knew how to do that equation, that you actually knew what that formula stood for. You look at it now and you say, I haven't the foggiest idea. I learned it at one point. But that has no ongoing relevance to me, not this class. God wants you and I to think about our own mortality, to meditate on it, to let the sobriety of it sink into us in such a way that it causes change, that it builds in our heart wisdom. Now, what wisdom does God want us to learn from meditating on our mortality in light of an immortal, timeless God? Three things here, I think, that will be helpful. Notice, first of all, verse number 11, a somewhat enigmatic question. Who knows the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath? Do you understand what Moses is saying there? Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Let me ask you, do you know the power of God's anger? Do you know the power of God's anger? Let me ask you this question. Who is the only person who can say, I know the power of God's anger? There's only one. And it is the Son of God. Only he can say, I know the power of God's anger because on the cross he took all of that wrath on himself for the sins of the whole world. In other words, when we understand this psalm in context of Moses, the man of God, likely in wilderness wanderings, seeing the judgment of God, the wrath of God being heaped for man's sin upon an entire generation and seeing their corpses littering the wilderness. And then we realize that the Son of God came to take on all the wrath of God that was for you and for me such that he could say, I know the power of his anger because I went to the death for it. You realize how Psalm 90 is pointing us forward inexorably to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see how Psalm 90 ultimately is not a somber, dreary psalm that should have all of us avoiding it lest we get too morbid. Psalm 90 is pointing us to the one who, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, just before he went to the executioner, mind you, just before his head was put on a chopping block, our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why? Because he stood in your place and said, I will know the power of your anger. I will take that on myself. Hebrews 2, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Friends, the first piece of wisdom that we glean from Psalm chapter 90 is knowing the purpose of the Son of God. We gain a heart of wisdom when the numbering of our days is a reflection on the death 
that Jesus Christ stood in our place and took so that we might have eternal life. Another piece of wisdom. Let's go past verse 12 now to verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee or have compassion concerning thy servants. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad our days, all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. There's so much there, but let me just summarize it like this. Moses recognizes that what wisdom looks like in numbering our days is having a perspective that is entirely Godward. A perspective that is entirely Godward. Those verses that we read, those four verses were just a prayer. Lord, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And what does wisdom look like? God, you're in control. We're relying on you. Return, O Lord, how long? Let it repent thee concerning thy servants. God, we're relying on you to satisfy us with your mercy. That word is, is, is the, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God. God, we're relying on you that we may rejoice and be glad our day, all our days. We're relying on you to make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us. And we're relying on you to let your work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. What's the picture here? The picture here to me is someone taking life that God has given us like a precious object and presenting it back to God and saying, I only have a few of these days left. They're yours. They're entirely in your control. God, you're the one who needs to do something with this life that you have given me. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. You see, friends, when you recognize, when you dwell on the morbidity of life, the mortality that you will one day experience, we're gonna end up going one of two directions. We're either gonna go in a Christianized sense of saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Teach us to number our days so that we may go and live it up so that we can enjoy our limited time that we have. But the Bible goes another way. The Bible says that's not the way. The way that wisdom says is, I have a limited time. My days have a stopping point and it could be tomorrow. And therefore, I'm gonna take this precious gift and go and present it back as a sacrifice to the one who gave it to me in the first place. Is that your view of life? Are you turning again to God in wisdom and offering him back what is his? So the wisdom that God wants us to learn is the purpose of his son in bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is the perspective that all of us should have of trembling hands presenting our, our lives back to him in dependence. But notice finally the priority. There's wisdom in this priority. Will you look with me at verse 17? And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Yea, the, um, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, 
The work of our hands, establish thou it. Now, how do mortal human beings relate to an immortal God? How could you expect to do anything valuable for an immortal God when your life is like a flood, when your life is like a sleep, when your life is like a grass that grows up in the morning and is cut down in the evening? How could we expect to do anything? Notice what Moses says. God, you establish the work of our hands. You are the immortal God. You are the one who has eternal purposes that sees the end from the beginning. Now, God, we are depending as mortal man on you to establish the work of our hands. My question for each one of us is what does your mortality drive you to do in terms of work, in terms of purpose, in terms of vision. You see, one of the great challenges of life that we face today is in the ease of our lives, in the prosperity of our society, we end up having no real vision or purpose whatsoever. We live as if short-term pleasure is the best that we can hope for and experience in life. There is no kingdom purpose. There is nothing that we are presenting to an eternal God and saying, God, have an eternal work through what my mortal self is accomplishing here. But not those who have learned to number their days and thereby to get a heart of wisdom. The ones who know that their life is short. The ones who know that as a mortal man they are dealing with an immortal God are the ones who say only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, as Jim Elliot said, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you and I are not conscious of our own impending mortality, of our own impending death, we will not attempt great things for God. We will not have a vision and purpose to do things, to have the work of our hands that we are trusting him to establish. We will simply get sucked into a false perception that really what the good things we have to taste in this life are all that there is. Ephesians 5, Paul says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You could say equally redeeming the time because the days are short. And the idea of that phrase is that we are to buy back every season of opportunity we have to do good, to buy back every uh, chance we have to make a difference for eternity, redeeming the time. Why? Because we recognize that the days that are around us are evil and they are short. Friends, have you entered the classroom with an immortal teacher? Have you asked him, will you ask him this evening, teach me to number my days? Teach me to recognize how mortal I am in compared to your immortality? Teach me the impending nature of my demise. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says in a book many of you have read called The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, We who live in this nervous age 
would be wise to meditate on our lives and our days long and often before the face of God and on the edge of eternity. For we are made for eternity as certainly as we are made for time. And as responsible moral moral beings, we must deal with both. He has set eternity in their heart, said the preacher. Where's that? Ecclesiastes. And I think he here sets forth both the glory and the misery of men. To be made for eternity and forced to dwell in time is for mankind a tragedy of huge proportions. All within us cries for life and permanence, and everything around us reminds us of mortality and change. Yet that God has made us of the stuff of eternity is both a glory yet to be realized and a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. I hope that you will take tonight this lesson from mortality and teach and ask God to teach you to number your days so that you may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this reminder that life is short, that this season of life we have been seeing around us with death piling up before our eyes is simply causing us to to not be able to forget our own mortality and our own weakness. We pray tonight, Father, that we would have, we would apply our hearts unto wisdom as you have called us.